Welcome back to the program. One of the strongest arguments for globalization and free trade is that nations that do business together don't go to war. The corollary of that is that continued economic growth depends on no major wars. In other words, global prosperity depends upon politics. But can the two ever be separated? Politics impacts growth and in many ways as peoples of the world seek a higher and better standard of living, economics impacts politics. We've created a kind of global feedback loop, or to put it another way, the chain of globalized growth and prosperity is only as strong as its weakest link. These ideas are part of a new book by my guest, Michael Mandelbaum. Michael Mandelbaum is the Christian A. Herder Professor and Director of the American Foreign Policy Program at Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies. He is the author of numerous previous books, including That Used to Be Us, with New York Times columnist Tom Friedman. Mandelbaum's recent book is The Road to Global Prosperity, and it is my pleasure to welcome Michael Mandelbaum back to this program to talk about the road to global prosperity. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. It's great to have you here. I want to talk, first of all, about this idea that politics and economics are really these two keys to global prosperity in in the coming years, and yet in many ways they seem to be in conflict with each other. One is about cooperation. One is about competition. One is a zero-sum game. One isn't. Start there. Well, they do have different essences. Uh, As you rightly say, economics is a positive-sum game, which means that everybody can gain from economic activity. When I get rich, you usually get rich. Whereas politics, since it's about power, and power is finite, is a zero-sum game. More power for me means less power for you. And so it's no wonder that the two are thought of as separate and, in fact, studied separately. Economists don't think much about politics, and people who study politics don't think or know much much about economics, and yet they are inextricably related. Uh, They're related uh, at many important points, one of which is that the functioning of the global economy, the functioning of the global market, like any market, requires a secure political framework. Uh, People have to know that contracts will be enforced, otherwise they won't trade with one another. Now, uh, in national markets, it's the government that enforces contracts. We have a legal system in the United States that was set up in no small part for precisely that reason, to make commerce possible. There is no global government, so the global market has no formally constituted government, but it has the next best thing. It has the United States. The United States has functioned as the world's quasi-government, and without that, the global economy wouldn't work nearly as well as it does. And that means that politics is important for the functioning of the global economy in this way in two respects. First, you need a political framework, and second, because the political framework is supplied by the United States, American foreign policy is crucial for globalization, and American foreign policy is, of course, and rightly, subject to political considerations in the United States. That means that when we debate and discuss the future of the American military and the future of American defense spending, we're also discussing indirectly the future of the global economy. Do we know enough at this point about the modern global economy in this digital age in which we live 
to really understand all the various forces that can shape it? Well, we cannot understand everything, and we certainly cannot predict with any precision the future of the global economy, and yet one of the premises of the road to global prosperity is that within limits, we can know important things about the future. In the book, I compare understanding the future of the global economy to the science of seismology, the study of earthquakes. Seismologists cannot predict just exactly when and at what magnitude earthquakes take place, which of course is unfortunate for people living in your area and my home area in Northern California, since there are major fault lines there. But seismologists do know where earthquakes take place, and they do know why they take place. They take place because of these faults, these fault lines, these cracks in the Earth's surface. And uh, in The Road to Global Prosperity, I take the same approach to the global economy. I argue that there are four major fault lines, activity along which will determine the future of the global economy. And, and those four are the strength of the political framework for the global economy that I've just been discussing and that the United States supplies. Second, the uh, strength and disruptive effects of the inevitable political backlash against globalization in every country. Third, the strength and frequency of financial crises, such as the one that we experienced in 2008, and that are, because of the nature of free market economies, almost inevitable. And fourth, and finally, the fourth major fault line in the global economy, the one that will determine its prospects for the future, involves the economic prospects for the major emerging market countries, the so-called BRICS, B-R-I-C, and that, of course, stands for Brazil, Russia, India, and China. They are important because they have a much greater potential for economic growth than do the rich countries, but whether they fulfill that potential will depend on how each of them handles a particular feature of its politics. Here again, we have the intimate relationship between politics and economics, a feature of its politics that was an asset for economic growth, but in the future will be a liability. So uh, in the road to global prosperity, I, I have a discussion of the economic prospects for each of those four countries. And talk a little bit about that in the context of the point that you just made, that in many cases, the landmine that exists within these BRIC countries, within Brazil, Russia, India, and China, are in part some of the things that made them successful in the first place. Well, that's, that's right. That's the key point, and that's what makes it hard to deal with them. Uh, in Brazil, it's the economic strategy known as populism, which emphasizes generous subsidies to businesses and welfare benefits to individuals, and that delivered uh, from the 1950s to the 1970s quite respectable growth, but then started to hamper Brazilian growth until the Brazilians stumbled into hyperinflation, very high inflation that was only brought under control in the 1990s. But the populist impulse is still there, and just how well the Brazilians can restrain it politically will determine how well they do in the future. In Russia, a country much in the news uh, recently, the great obstacle to long-term prosperity is 
the basis of Russia's short-term well-being, and that is energy wealth. Russia is what has come to be known as a petrostate. It relies excessively on revenues from the sale of oil and gas, and that makes the country not exactly rich, but it certainly makes the leaders of the country, the, the groups surrounding Vladimir Putin, extremely rich since they siphon off a very large share of those revenues. But at the same time, oil wealth relieves the Russian government of the political pressure to build the institutions and adopt the policies that lead to long-term economic growth. So if and when the money runs out from the sale of oil and gas, Russia is going to be in a very difficult situation. For India, the asset-turned-liability is Indian democracy. Now, uh, Indian democracy is necessary for India. It would not be a unified country without democracy. It would have fallen apart just as that other country carved out of the British Empire in South Asia in 1947, Pakistan, did. So I'm certainly not arguing that India's economic prospects depend upon switching to an authoritarian form of government. That would be a disaster. But India's democracy turns out to be dysfunctional. And in particular, the way the Indian democratic system works has prevented India from doing the two things that are necessary to lift Indians out of poverty on a large scale, just as China has done. Those two things are, first, building sufficient infrastructure, roads, bridges, airports, dams, tunnels, and especially education. And second, establishing a large low-skill industry sector, that is, industries that require relatively modest skills, so that people from India's villages can move to the cities, work in the factories for these industries, and increase their incomes dramatically, even as people in China have done. The way India's political system works, and it is the democratic features of that system that contribute here, has blocked the building of sufficient infrastructure and the development on a sufficiently large scale of low-skilled industries, such as textiles, at which would lift uh, India out of poverty on a very large scale. So for India, the asset-turned-liability is democracy. For China, it's China's autocratic political system. The autocratic rule of the Chinese Communist Party has a very, very impressive record, three decades of double-digit annual growth. In fact, where economic growth is concerned, China is probably the best country in history over the last 30 years. But to go forward, to continue to grow, the Chinese are going to have to modify their form of government. They're going to need more liberty, especially economic liberty, more secure property rights, and in order to maintain political stability, which is necessary for economic growth, they're going to have to have a more accountable government. So the great drama in China in the years ahead is whether China can become maybe not a full-fledged Western-style democracy, but more democratic in its governance, which is the condition for continuing rapid economic progress. Is there another inherent problem in both the BRIC countries and even in the West? And that is to the extent that, that economic growth is about the creation of more and more wealth, the extent to which the gap continues to grow between the haves and the have-nots in terms of that wealth, 
creates a destabilizing political environment, which is another potential danger, it seems. Uh, that is certainly true. It's especially true in the Western countries and in the United States. Uh, bear in mind that when we talk about inequality on a global scale, it has rather narrowed. The poorest countries and the largest poor countries, China and India, have done very well. So the gap between the poor and rich countries in many important cases is narrow. It's also important to note that the largest number of desperately poor people in the world still live in two countries, China and India, and those countries are doing well. So if you're a very poor person in India or China, you have a chance to do much better without leaving your home. Not necessarily the case for some countries in Africa, but uh, all of that is to say that the global picture on inequality is not necessarily bleak and in some ways is pretty bright. On the other hand, within countries such as the United States, we know that inequality is growing. Uh, now that's due to a number of things, only one of which is globalization. In fact, economic studies show, or at least suggest, that the principal reason for the rise in inequality, for the stagnation of most people's incomes in the United States, while the so-called 1% get richer, is technology. It's the new technology that has led to what some economists call skills polarization, the, the wiping out of what used to be decent wage, middle-income jobs. Many, some of those have gone overseas, but a lot of them have, have just been uh, overtaken by technology. As, as somebody put it, people don't lose their jobs to China, they lose it to microchips. Still, because these trends are going on in the United States, because the trend toward inequality and wage stagnation is pronounced, this is an increasingly important political issue, and it manifests itself among other things, in anger at China. So these economic trends could lead to political pressure for cracking down on trade with China. They could conceivably lead to a trade war with China, and that would certainly adversely affect the global economy. One of the other things it does is that it creates a great deal of free-floating anger, not just directed at China, but directed at modernity in many respects. And one of the net results of that is a kind of hyper-nationalism that we're seeing in various places that is antithetical to globalization. Well, that is also true. And uh, that leads to one of the major points of the road to global prosperity. In fact, it's the theme of chapter two, and that is that uh, while globalization does in general benefit the countries involved in it, it always penalizes some individuals. And those individuals and the firms for which they work that are also penalized will organize themselves to try to resist the global flows of products or money or people. And uh, that is an inevitable feature of globalization, uh, and it can have serious effects on the politics of particular communities, particular countries, and the world as a whole. Uh, we see this particularly in the response to immigration. There's a uh -huh. visible backlash against immigration in both Europe and the United States, although 
in my analysis of the backlash against immigration and the road to global prosperity, I find that the sources of the backlash are rather different in Europe than in the United States. Uh, in Europe, there is a political backlash and manifestation of nationalism, as you say, because uh, the, the immigrants in many cases do not assimilate. They do not adopt the local customs and the local values. In fact, in a, in a few isolated cases, immigrants or their descendants in Europe have participated in terrorism. And naturally, the, the Europeans are unhappy about that. But we have a controversy about immigrants in the United States, but it's really, I think, not the same. The United States is not and is not becoming an anti-immigrant country. I think the main objection is to the illegality. People would still welcome immigrants, and they recognize the enormous benefits that the United States has always received from immigrants, but they're unhappy with the fact that so many of them have broken the law. And that, I think, leads to the political struggle over immigration in the United States. But uh, you're, you're quite right that uh, globalization does have harmful as well as beneficial effects, and those harmful effects can manifest themselves in nationalism. While immigration doesn't manifest itself as profoundly in the U.S., one of the other outcomes in the U.S., one of the other reactions is a degree of isolationism, which you argue is dangerous as well. There is uh, always a tendency to try to withdraw from the world. But I don't think that it has enough strength as a pure isolationist sentiment to make a real difference in American policy. I think that we are in a globalized era that is not going to go away. And one of the main reasons for that is technology. Technology is the platform on which globalization rests. And since the beginning of a genuinely global economy in the middle of the 19th century, advances in the technology of transportation and communication have knit the world ever more closely together. In the 19th century, we had, of course, the steamship, the railroad, and the telegraph. And today we have the Internet, satellite communication, and cell phones. And they have really brought the world so close together that I think there's no separating it. There's no untangling it. There's no going back from globalization. And that's true, I think, for another reason. Globalization, as we have experienced it, depends upon the widespread diffusion of the free market system of economic organization. And the global dominance of free markets is a pretty recent phenomenon. Uh, as recently as the latter half of the 20th century, much of the world organized itself in economic terms in different ways. There was central planning in the communist countries and uh, a high degree of government control in countries that had adopted socialist mechanisms. But communism and socialism were discredited at the end of the 20th century because free markets delivered much better economic growth and economic growth has become increasingly important as we said at the outset of our conversation. That means that countries have almost everywhere adopted free markets and free markets lead themselves, uh, lend themselves almost inevitably to globalization. 
if you have the free exchange of goods and services within a country, it's very difficult to prevent that exchange from lapping over national borders and becoming global in scope. So because of the supremacy, because of the dominance of free markets, and because there's no other alternative economic system that has any credibility or any popularity these days, I think globalization is here to stay for a good long time. How those free markets play out within particular countries is still an open question and arguably different from country to country as opposed to perhaps the neocon idea, which is that in order for economic free marketism to thrive, it has to be coupled with kind of American-style democracy. Uh, That's certainly true, and we see in China the case of a country that has had an authoritarian political system and has been wildly successful economically. So there is no necessary connection between free markets, globalization on the one hand, and democracy on the other. Nonetheless, I think that as free markets operate and as countries become enmeshed in the global economy, there tend to be forces pushing them toward more democratic political forms. There's nothing inevitable about this, and in China there are certainly countervailing uh, forces. But I do think that insofar as we wish to see democracy spread around the world, and that's something that most Americans favor, uh, our best bet is the continued thriving of the global economy and the involvement of more and more countries ever more deeply in it. It certainly doesn't guarantee democracy. It hasn't produced formal democracy in China, and it certainly hasn't produced formal democracy in Europe. But it does push in that direction, and over time, I think we are going to see authoritarian regimes that are enmeshed in the global economy become at least somewhat more democratic. What does this mean for the role of global financial institutions like the World Bank or the IMF? Well, uh, finance is the Achilles heel of free market economies. Uh, Financial systems in free markets tend to instability. They tend to produce bubbles where money flows into a particular asset, the price gets bid up, and then the psychology changes, it reverses, money rushes out, And that can do serious economic damage, as occurred in the United States after the collapse of the investment bank Lehman Brothers on September 15, 2008. And that is inherent in free markets. So we're always going to have the potential for financial crises, and that means that from time to time we will have financial crises, which means that we need regulation and we need government bodies to deal with financial crises, both at the national and the global level. We need the Federal Reserve to deal with financial crises in the United States, and we need the IMF to try to cope with worldwide financial crises. Um, And and I think uh, they've done a reasonable job especially in the wake of the great near meltdown of 2008. But what that means is that there will always be a role for government in trying to prevent where possible and mitigate where it is not possible the outbreak of financial crises and to deal with the damage once financial crises have occurred. 
uh, as I say, financial crises are inevitable, they are dangerous, and they require government to cope with them. What did we learn from the 2008-2009 financial crisis that will help us in the future in dealing with these kind of fluctuations in markets on a global level? Well, we learned that the world is sufficiently interdependent that a financial crisis in one part of the world can spread elsewhere. We learned that financial crises, even in these days of sophistication and uh, more advanced economic tools than we've ever had before, are probably going to occur. We learned that we need more transparency in the financial system and probably more regulation. And one hopes that uh, the regulation that we have passed in the wake of that great crisis embodied in the Dodd-Frank legislation will help to make financial crises both less frequent and less severe. Uh, But the lesson that we should have learned is that finance is inherently vulnerable to these crises, and we have to be on the lookout for them. And finally, what is the danger of destabilized regimes such as in Iran and North Korea, and what danger does that pose to the global road to prosperity? Uh, North Korea and uh, Iran are outliers. They're not important for the global economy except because of their location. They can make trouble in places that are important for the global economy. Iran in the Persian Gulf, because that's the source of the world's largest reservable reserves of the world's indispensable mineral, oil. The Iranians were to start a war or get nuclear weapons and try to intimidate the rest of the countries in that region. This would be bad for the global economy because it would threaten what is, in effect, the global economy's supply of oxygen, namely oil. North Korea is a basket case. It has no economic significance in the world whatsoever, but it is located in the midst of the most economically dynamic region of the world, namely East Asia. And if the North Koreans should start a war, it could involve South Korea and Japan, as well as China, three very important countries for the global economy. Uh, The United States, in its role as guardian of global stability, has, whether we like it or not, responsibility for containing North Korea and for keeping nuclear weapons out of the hands of Iran. So this is another instance where American foreign policy and the security aspect of American foreign policy is extremely important, vital, indispensable for the smooth functioning of the global economy. Michael Mandelbaum, the book is The Road to Global Prosperity. Michael, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.